Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can I tell you about the moment that I decided to join the union? Oh, sure. Okay. So, like I said, I, w- I had all my points, talking it over with my agent. Should I, shouldn't I? Is there a market for me? And I go to this audition, and I'm not going to say what show it was, but they were seeing me for the lead as a non-union actor. And I sang my song, and the casting director turned to the writer who was sitting next to him And they were kind of going back and forth and trying to not let me hear, but not trying nearly hard enough because I literally heard with my own ears, well, if you're going non-union, this is as good as you're going to get. So I walked out of that audition and I called my agent. I said, I think it's time to join the union. This was the time to close the chapter on that part of my career. And if I needed to like step up my game, then step up my game. But I'm not going to do another audition where the creative team is talking about me like that right in front of my face. Yeah, I'm so sorry that happened. That's Oh my gosh, it's entertainment industry. What are you going to do? But that is why unions exist, though. Sure. Is because it's always going to feel like a cattle call a little bit. (laughs) But the more that we can stand up and say, no, like we're professionals, we deserve to be treated as such. I think that it's the it's better for everybody in the long run. Sure, we're worth something. You know, we're not Thank just you. we're not just a cog in a machine even though it feels like it sometimes. And look, being a cog in a machine is awesome as long as everyone realizes how important all of the cogs are. Absolutely. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about the pajama game. To join me in this conversation is someone who you may recognize. He appeared briefly in our Hairspray episode, and ever since, the people have been clamoring, begging, give this guy his own episode. And we are. We have. We have done that. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Chisholm. Oh, thank you so much. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on. And by clamoring thank- people, you mean me, right? <laughs> <laughs> Blowing up my IG. Thank you for being willing to do the show that, correct me if I'm wrong, was kind of a blind spot in your musical theater history knowledge? It was. Um, I I knew all the hits from it because, sure. you know, who doesn't? But it was definitely not a show that was like 
on my radar. Which is really funny because I think that for an entire generation, the pajama game was the musical that was done, like recycled every couple of seasons at your local community theater. Excuse me. You were always doing it at high schools, right? It was everywhere. There was the movie version. And I think that now as a musical theater loving uh, world, we really don't see this show very much at all. Yeah. I mean, the last time that I remember hearing a lot about it was during the Broadway revival in the mid 2000s with Kelly O'Hara and Harry Connick Jr., Uh, When it beat out the revival of Sweeney Todd. That's the last real major time that I heard about it. Scandaloso. (laughs) (laughs) Did you see it? I did not. I did not, no. I remember the big, like, uh, marketing push was this was the sexy pajama game, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Which is funny because... The pajama game was always sexy. Sure. <laughs> like, that's why it all takes place in a pajama factory. Right. And, and sometimes I think for a very uh, over-sexualized society, we totally forget that. That, like, in the 1950s, and 1954, the fact that we were talking about pajamas? Scandalous. Sca- yes, <laughs> speaking of. Uh, so it's a really fun, funny show. I think it was really responsible for putting musical comedy, emphasis on the word comedy, center stage, for lack of a better term. And it proved that like you didn't have to have a South Pacific in order to have a really substantial hit on Broadway. Absolutely. No, that was and that was the thing when I was listening to the um, the original cast album, because I think that's the one that's streaming. You might be able to find the other mm-hmm. one, too. But that was the one I listened to. And I was just and I was like, oh, yeah, this is like Every single song is like knockout, entertaining, and just and funny and really smart. I can definitely see how it was super popular. Well, I'm really excited to talk about it with you because I feel like this show is going to be a hub for so many things that we've talked about on the podcast up until now. So there's going to be a lot of references from from episodes that we've already recorded. That'll be really, really fun, I think, for everybody to listen to. Let's start, though, by talking about a composing team that we haven't discussed on the podcast, Richard Adler and Jerry Ross. They are probably best known for Damn Yankees, but Pajama Game is right up there. Uh, Well, it's their only two, so... Let's actually talk about them individually because they are the rare composing team that shares credit for both music and lyrics. I can't think of another one. Yeah, I mean... I, I guess you can think of a couple of like of single people who did like music lyrics and and book like all together, mm-hmm. but I can't really off the top of my head at least think of anybody else who shared that specific credit. It takes a lack of ego, that's for sure. Oh sure. Richard Adler, his father was a classical pianist and was like a teacher for Aaron Copeland, like incredible pianist. And so he grew up in a very musical home. He served in the army and then came back and started working as a as a composer. Jerry Ross was born Gerald Rosenberg. Both he and Richard Adler are from Jewish descent. Jerry grew up in the Yiddish theater and was actually really successful as like a singer performer. He meets up with Adler in 1950 and they very quickly become protégés of Frank Lesser. Frank Lesser, reminder for everybody, is who wrote Guys and Dolls. Frank Lesser is also known for being kind of a a mentor to many up-and-coming composers like Adler and Ross here, also Meredith Wilson uh, who wrote The Music Man. And he would he would ghostwrite some songs if they needed some help and wouldn't take credit. 
such as the case in Music Man, he he wrote My White Knight. And also in Pajama Game, he wrote a couple as well. But in both of those instances, you see Frank Lesser's hand in their work. There are weird intervals. There are surprising key changes and meter changes. It's not. It's kind of a departure from Jerome Kern a little bit, in my opinion. Some of that more traditional stuff at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. It's all about personality yeah. and chemistry. Oh, absolutely. I was very surprised with a couple of the lesser known songs in the sh- in the score lesser known ha, songs ha, ha. yes i wish i had planned that <laughs> um but that i was very surprised at at what you were saying like some of the intervals and just some of the melody lines you know especially for like the yeah. 50s not at all predictable and yet also really energetic and very hummable I, I I totally dig them. I'm, I remember, okay, so I did Damn Yankees. I'm sure we'll do an episode on Damn Yankees in the future, but it was one of my very first shows that I did as a child and I was in like the children's chorus and I had an entire existential breakdown as to whether I should say Damn Yankees or Darn Yankees on stage. <laughs> Eventually I realized I was being a character and not myself, so I could do that. <laughs> but I remember listening to A Little Brain's A Little Talent and I was so surprised that hook didn't have a rhyme in it. A little brains, a little talent with an emphasis on the latter. Usually you would there would be a predictable rhyme in the hook. Right. Not not the case with these guys. I used to think that that lyric was with the emphasis on the latter. So you're ahead of me at least. Ladder with a double D. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Now the first thing that Adler and Ross Wright is this review. Of course, during this time, a lot of the great composers, Jerry Herman included, were discovered by writing off-Broadway reviews. And the review that they wrote was called John Murray Anderson's Almanac. It was a big hit. We all love it. But what it did provide them was a platform to be seen by the talents of George Abbott. Now, we've talked about George Abbott in our Once Upon a Mattress episode. He is the definition of musical comedy. And at this point, he's already in his 60s. So he's been doing this a long time. And he and Jerry Robbins, which is why I'm wearing my friend Jerry shirt. Oh, also... I'm wearing my pajamas. <laughs> I forgot to tell you because we're doing the pajama game. I'm wearing very sensual, oversized flannel plaid <laughs> pajama bottoms. Drives all the boys wild. Um, <laughs> now, before we get off of Adler and Ross, the next year, literally the year after, they do Damn Yankees, which is another huge hit. And then right after that, Jerry Ross gets a horrible lung infection and dies at the age of 29. Which is insane. Like, I just turned 29. So to think, like... Congratulations. You've lived longer than Jerry Ross. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. But just the thought of that, like, the fact that he, you know, was gone at that age is just... I I knew that somewhere in the back of my head for a long time, but when I... I didn't. I completely forgot that that was the reason... me being probably interested in drama, I'm like, oh, they didn't get along and they parted <laughs> ways. No, no. Literally one of them passed away after they wrote two huge hits and we never got to hear anything else they did ever again. Right. It's like one of the, it's one of those, like, what could we have seen had they, had yes. they lived? Yeah, it's true. Now, if that wasn't awesome enough, The Pajama Game also was the first Broadway show for one Mr. Bob Fosse who we did a whole deep dive about in our Chicago episode. Go back and listen to Corey talk about him. It's amazing. But at this point, he, uh, Mr. Bobby Fosse, had been in Hollywood on contract with the studio system 
It didn't go so well, except for the fact that he was in the movie version of Kiss Me Kate and choreographed his little section of this number called From This Moment On. Mm-hmm. So he performs it, he choreographed it, he dances it with one Miss Carol Haney. That comes across the eyes of Jerome Robbins. He tells George Abbott, hey, there's this guy, Bob Fosse, maybe we should get him as the choreographer. George Abbott had also heard from this dancer named Joe McCracken. I'm dropping so many names, just stick with me. They also, they, he's like the best thing since peanut brittle. So they hire Bob Fosse on, but they keep Jerome Robbins on as co-director so that in case, you know, old hack Fosse can't handle it, that <laughs> that Jerome Robbins can step in, who at this point was, of course, an amazing choreographer to fill in the holes. So that is quite a team. Nope. To say the least. Yeah, no kidding. For this like fluffy little show that we're like, oh, it's cute. No, literally, it kind of changed musical theater forever. It really did. Kind of insane. The show opens in 1954. It runs for like two and a half years. It wins pretty much every Tony Award that it could, except for leading actor and leading actress, which go to Mary Martin and Cyril Richard for Peter Pan, which Jerome Robbins also directed and choreographed. These are some titans in theater at this point. Lord. Now, do you know what the musical is based on? The Yes, the play, Seven and a Half Cents. A novel first, right? Uh, yes, I believe so. Is written by Richard Bissell, and he and George Abbott worked on the script together. Now, it's about this pajama factory, and they're having some problems. Because while they're cranking out all of these pajamas, all of the other factories around them have provided their workers with a seven and a half cent raise. Scandalous. The the poor people at the pajama factory have not received that raise. And so they're putting pressure on their union as well as all of the workers to make sure that that happens. This is the other really cool thing that we get to talk about with this show is unions. And it's one of the reasons why I also thought it would be great for you to be a guest on the episode, because you are currently a non-union actor. I'm a union actor. So let's talk a little bit about what that's all about. I'm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, how timely. Correct. Right. <laughs> so when did you start performing professionally? Like, did you go to college? I can't, I can't remember. I did. I went, I got a BFA in musical theater. I graduated in 2015. Uh, God bless. <laughs> it's uh, awesome. And uh, I've been lucky enough to work, you know, at least half of the year, if not more, every year since then, until, you know, present times. And sure. um, all non-union work, although my last contract, I did join the EMC program, the Equity Membership Candidate Program. So I'm on my way with points for that. Awesome. So for those who don't know, there is a union in our country that oversees all professional theater. And it's called Actors Equity Association. I'm a member, uh, if you want to listen to our City of Angels episode, we talked to a production stage manager who is also in the union, the Actors Union. Unions provide us with the opportunity to uh, secure safety precautions, uh, livable wages, and in general, contracts that benefit not only the producers, but the actors as well, the performers and stage managers. Up until, ooh, I think it was up until I graduated college, you got into the union by being offered your card. And it usually meant that a theater company or a Broadway show or something 
really wanted you, and so then they would just offer you your card. Now, since the pajama game came out, which was kind of the height of unions, membership of unions across the country, not just in Actors Equity Association, has steadily fallen, along with wages. Go figure. I'm not saying that those things are the exact same, but when you look at the chart of both of those things falling steadily since the mid-1950s, you're like, huh, something something interesting there. So by the time I graduated college, joining the union was like something you wanted to maybe do, question mark? Is that how you felt? Yeah, it was because, I mean, most of the work that I was auditioning for at all these like big cattle call things were all for, I mean, non-union work. There was very, If there were union contracts on any of them, there was like maybe one, maybe two. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it just made more sense right out of school unless i was gonna you know like you like you said get a broadway show and you know your broadway or or a tour that was a union tour or something like that but most of the work seemed to be non-union so you've got like all of these brand new bfa musical theater grads going into an overpopulated talent pool fighting for fewer and fewer contracts And I think the union was like, huh, this isn't looking good. So then they introduced the EMC program, which was an opportunity for actors like you and me to start building up points. The more that we work at theaters that operate like union houses, they then afford a certain amount of points to the performers so that once the actor accrues that number, a specific number of points, they can actually buy into the union and not wait for a producer to offer it to them. Right. Does that make sense? Did I explain that well? It can be somewhat confusing. Uh, That was better than it was explained to me in college. (laughs) It wasn't explained to me in college at all. So I'm glad to hear that we're, (laughs) we're getting better and better. When I graduated college, I started working, started accruing points. But even when I hit my maximum points, you still have, I think, like a year to decide whether or not you want to buy in. And I was still kind of struggling. Oh, like, is there enough work for me as a union actor? Should I should I do it? Should I not? Uh, do you still feel that way? Yeah. Um, well, I know at least recent, relatively recently, like the number of points you had to accrue has dropped. Like, mm-hmm. it used to be, I think, 50 points, and now it's yep. 25 points. Oh, wow. They slashed in hand. I'm pretty sure. Sh- yeah, uh, don't don't quote me on that. Because I got my, the gig that I worked, I got 11 points. Uh, it was a long, it was oh, a long. so you're there? You're on your way? Yeah, it was a long, it was a long contract. So um, it's definitely something that will be on my mind, because my goal is to, you know, do a Broadway show and, you know, things like that, sure. that require it. So obviously... Right, um, right. But it is it is definitely something because all of my work, none, of, it's all been at these small theaters with small, you know, groups of people who come to see the shows and mm-hmm, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the logistics of intimate, it, intimate, what, I think, yes, good yes. word, or in, or just in places <laughs> where there's just not a whole lot of theater. Like I've worked in Montana and uh, oh my gosh, how cool, yeah, and you know, places like that. So it's like you can only afford the kind of quality that you can afford, right? And there are some. You know, union. You know, there are a lot of non-union actors who are incredibly talented and just as talented as some un- as a lot of union performers. Oh, oh, by all means, let there be no hesitation or question on the matter. Talent is not the issue. Sure, I was even thinking about in terms of like production design. Oh, you know? no, sure, absolutely. Well, you- where it's like, what are you going to spend your money on? Are do you, are you going to do? 
1776 in with union actors and no costumes you know what sure. i mean like what where what are you going to decide to use your money for i didn't work with a union stage manager i think until 2018 maybe 2019 honestly um really? they were all you know so it, it was even that was kind of like okay where where's the money going you know what i mean and it was going mm -hmm. i mean you could see it on stage there on in the shows i mean they were going it was going somewhere but you know occasionally you did think uh where where where's the money going if it's not in my pocket <laughs> fair question i have to say you know i've heard horror stories from friends of working at certain non-union theaters of how they're treated but i've personally been very lucky to work at theaters that while the hours may have not been something a union would appreciate. You know, those places are still like family to me. I'm going to visit one oh, later this that's summer. So. Oh, that's so great to hear. Yeah. I'm really glad. And by all means, I'm also not saying that unions are the answer to everything because I get really annoyed with my own union sometimes. I've been really annoyed lately throughout all of this COVID stuff sure. about the amount of information that was and was not coming to me from my union. There are always gripes, for sure. But I'm also, I tend to not be the type of person that's like, burn it all to the ground and start over. It's all broken. I tend to not be that kind of person. I am in the same kind of boat. If it's broke, you don't need to burn it. Right. Very good. You can just fix it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk, uh, let's talk through the show because it's a really fun one. Everything else that we need to talk about will come up, I'm sure. The pajama game starts, like I said, in a pajama factory. And right from the get-go, we have this guy named Heinz who's talking directly to the audience. And he's saying, look, this is a metaphor. Uh, as silly, I mean, it, it, uh, yes, as we just talked about unions and things like that. But this show gets so silly at times to come out and start the show by saying, this is serious. Right. This is a very serious drama. Right. <laughs> it just it just makes me laugh. It's not taking itself seriously at all. If there is any symbolism to be found, it's that when they say we're in the business of making pajamas, it seems that this business is actually in the business of making love because everybody's horny here. They're all looking for their one true love or their next two-minute love. Whatever it is, everybody's looking for love. You would have think they've all been in quarantine for a year or something. <laughs> Maybe we need to do the pajama game out of quarantine. <laughs> Everyone will be like, I am Prez. So oh, you I got hope Heinz. not. Don't be Prez. <laughs> oh, Prez is problematic, for sure. So we got Heinz. Who is Heinz? He's like... Well, he's the timekeeper, right? He's the one that's keeping everybody on schedule. So his his job is to look at the clock and make sure that the amount of product they're pumping out is the fastest they can do right who else do you have at the factory you got prez let's actually just talk about him prez doesn't seem to be the brightest bulb in the bunch the sharpest pencil in the desk and yet somehow is the head of the union right <laughs> well there you go <laughs> no comment he seems to be in charge of getting this seven and a half cent raise passed and yet is so distracted by all of the women constantly around him. Poor Prez. Just I a mean, lot is of there women. anything is there anything worse than being a straight guy and just like being tempted constantly by all of those women who are just flaunting themselves in front of him? It's true. Oh. I'm just playing my my small violin right here. You also have Babe. Babe is 
in charge of the grievance committee. I love that there's a committee for grievances. Now that's just called Twitter. <laughs> she is in charge of that. So if the, anybody has it, maybe this would be like HR. Right. Yeah. She's yes. like, she's in charge of HR for the union. And then you've got this brand new superintendent who is kind of overseeing all of production. His name is Sid. Now, Sid and Babe are the couple that you know are going to end up together. And it's kind of unfair because there are no two cuter names together. Sid and Babe, Babe and Sid. If you're going to do like one of those Brangelina type things, Sabe or Bid (laughs) are also cute. Like it's just inevitable. These two are meant to be together. You also got Hasler, who is kind of the epitome of corporate businessman. He's a fighter and he is not letting his workers get that seven and a half cent raise because he keeps telling them that it will destroy the company. Finally, you've got some secretaries. You got Gladys, who is Hasler's secretary, and she is Sassafras personified. She also is kind of dating Heinz, except that Heinz is always so jealous of her talking to any man that they're constantly fighting. Right. Lord. And then you also have Mabel, who is Sid's secretary. And those are kind of our main folks. Just a soap opera waiting to happen. And I can't help but think that this is the reason why the show was done so much is because you've got so many great characters, so many little standouts for lots of different people. So it's a really fun show to do and and showcase a lot of fun talent. Right. Which is probably why they're so popular in high schools and community theaters, because then you can be like, oh, yes, my daughter has like a big, big moment. Come see her. So true. So true. The opening number is called When You're Racing with the Clock. Uh, So cute. All of the girls in the factory are producing their pajamas and it's all about productivity, right? Mm -hmm. Go, 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 go. Make, 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 make. Right. Uh, We then hear everybody kind of talking about this new superintendent. He's from Chicago, which means like he doesn't belong in this small town with this small factory. Sid comes forward and sings, a new town is a blue town, which is is not political at all. (laughs) No, no, it's not. But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful. <laughs> but it is. And this is one of those songs that you can tell was probably written by Frank Lesser because it sounds a lot like My Time of Day from a guy, from Guys and Dolls. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, get a but, baritone out there and have him sing something. Oh, my gosh. Can we talk about John Raitt? I, I was waiting. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Sid is played by John Raitt. And now you. Oh, he, <laughs> John Raitt, the original Billy Bigelow in Carousel. Uh, father of Bonnie Raitt, the the, the uh, recording artist. He has one of the most, in his words, the perfect musical theater voice. It's a lyric baritone. <laughs> Look, he's not wrong. I, I, you can't fault the man. He's, you know, maybe not the most humble person, but he's right. <laughs> God rest his soul. He's been gone for a while, but still. No, but like you hear him sing and you can almost hear the panties drop. It, it, it rattles rafters even through a sound system. It's insane. I'm so impressed by him, even by today's standards. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would pay, yeah, if he, I, you know, we, we should have so many voices like that today in men, men's voices. He was originally going to go into opera and then Billy Bigelow came around and it completely changed his life. Right. Yeah. Cause I, I remember, um, I'm a big John Raitt fan of that wasn't obvious. I remember w- watching an interview with him where he talked about his, his audition piece for Carousel was the aria the, from the Barber of Seville. 
So he actually, oh gosh. yeah, that's what he actually auditioned with. And it kind of became his trademark until they wrote soliloquy for him. And then that became his trademark. And he's playing opposite Babe, who is played by Janice Page, who I have heard is an incredible woman, an amazing actor. On this recording, she is unpredictable. (laughs) It's true. I don't mean to talk poorly of Janice Page, but these songs are very, very challenging. And she is holding on with like every last fiber of those vocal cords. Meanwhile, next to her, John Ray is just like comfy as can be. Absolutely. I mean, she... I really like her voice a lot. It's got a lot of character. Absolutely. She sounds really great. Yeah, but it, I, I totally understand what you mean. And um, I think, again, me with my stories, but I think I so she's still alive. She's 98. Yes. And uh, God bless Janice. Right. And I think I recently saw a video where she sang, not recently, obviously, because of COVID, but within the last, like, say, five years or something, she sang something from the pajama game that was like a parody where she was oh, and it was and she and you know she's 98 so what do you want from her voice at this point but right it was still you're like oh yeah there's that kind of sex pot energy still it is. at 98 yeah it's really crazy you're right it, it is kind of a sexy smoky mm-hmm. feel oh absolutely yeah 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 no i would have loved to have seen her in the theater because i bet she was a ball buster oh absolutely she's um one of those you know dames yeah 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 so as we're meeting all of these characters and Uh, Sid has his song about the blue town. Babe gets her song, which is called I'm Not at All in Love, which why this song doesn't get performed more is beyond me. It's a great, great tune. Yeah, for like an for an for, you know, a pre 65, as we say in the business. um, (laughs) Please explain yourself. (laughs) Okay, in the in auditions, we are asked to bring in audition pieces, songs, and often they will say we want something from this era. And if they're not going to get too specific, then they'll usually either say, we want something from pre-65, 1965, or post-65. And pre-65 is usually the more, uh, what we consider the classic musical theater sound. Golden age. Golden yeah, age. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then any, and then post-65, you get into Sondheim and things like that. So. Schwartz, Schwartz. All the Stevens. All the Stevens. <laughs> Agreed. Um, yeah, this is a great tune. It is. It's a great song. And you know, a lot of different female voices can can sing it and sound really great on it. I, you know, because mm-hmm. I mean, if you listen to um, Janice Page and then go or then go listen to Kelly O'Hara, you couldn't think of two more different vocals. So true. But they both that sound is such great. A good point. You're you're totally right. Um, ballbusters in very different ways, but ballbusters nonetheless. Very true. I promise that's the last time I'll say ballbusters. Next up, we have Gladys and Hines. Like we said, his jealousy is always flaring up. And he was played by Eddie Foy Jr. Thank you. Who is like a very famous comedian, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Very famous character actor. Uh, once again, everybody loved the show because it was just so darn funny and you had such hilarious people. Gladys was played by Carol Haney. Now let's talk about Miss Carol because like I said... She was dancing on screen with Bob Fosse and Kiss Me Kate. So then when Bob Fosse gets hired as choreographer, he brings her into the cast. She originally is just going to do a few dance features, but George Abbott falls in love with her and bumps her up to a bigger role, this role of the secretary Gladys. And it turns her into a huge Broadway star. She wins the Tony Award for Best Featured Actress that year. And uh, not only became a huge star because of performing, but also a choreographer. And do you know what she choreographed off the top of your head? You tell me. She choreographed Funny Girl. 
and she loves me. I'm not making this up. I love she loves me. Who doesn't? We on the podcast love she loves me. Um, unfortunately, kind of like Jerry Ross, right after Funny Girl, she passes away. And so her career was cut short as well. So Gladys and Heinz are always fighting because he's jealous. She leaves and the other secretary, Mabel, and Heinz have this great song called I'll Never Be Jealous Again, in which she's like (laughs) enacting exposure therapy on him and creating these scenarios where he has every reason to be jealous, but then he's going to like calm himself down, use a little self-care, a little self-talk and uh, not be jealous of her. Of course, by the end. He can't take it anymore. And those feelings just flare up again. It's a, it's one of those great second banana songs. Next comes the inevitable meet cute between Sid and Babe. And of course, Babe is not interested because she is all business. The union means everything to her. She's, you know, looking at getting uh, the seven and a half cent raise. Sid, however, is full on hit by Cupid's arrow and um, and is falling for Babe. And so he sits down to his desk. He's got like one of those little dictaphones Mm -hmm. where you, you know, you talk into it and it records your voice. And it's such a fun conceit for a musical number. He starts singing into the dictaphone as like a memo to himself. And uh, the memo is the legendary song called Hey There. Now, when the second verse starts he's actually listening to the quote-unquote recording that he just made of himself, and then he starts answering back to his own voice, kind of creating this little scene between him and himself. It's such a cute idea. And, I mean, what could be better than John Wright singing with himself? (laughs) And he'd be the first one to tell you. (laughs) Hey There is one of the great classics from this show, it was a huge hit for Rosemary Clooney mm-hmm. from, you know, of course, White Christmas fame. Yeah. I mean, you just look at the list of people who've sung this song, though. It's insane. I mean, like every crooner or, you know, woman with a certain type of smoky loveliness to her voice has sung the song. It's just. And we hear it three more times throughout the show. So don't <laughs> worry if you didn't get enough this time. They knew they had a hit. Amen. <laughs> and they did. Next up, there's this picnic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a company picnic. There's this entire scene where Heinz comes with these knives. This is like something that would only happen in a musical in the 1950s, and I'm so happy (laughs) that it would. Heinz shows up with these knives, and he's like, I have this amazing knife trick where I throw knives. And everyone's like, oh, good. Let's, Let's see it. And it turns out that Heinz is actually a really great knife thrower. I, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe it, it was they added that in because Eddie Foy was a knife thrower. Like that was like something he did. Well, and it's definitely coming out of that whole vaudeville period of time where it seemed like everybody needed to do everything. You needed to have at least a couple stupid human tricks like in your back pocket <laughs> just in case you ended up on the vaudeville circuit and needed to throw knives. Sure. You know, not everyone can bump it with a trumpet or something. The amount of musical theater references in this episode alone. You're welcome. Toward the end of the picnic, they sing this great song called Once a Year Day. This is one of my favorite songs in the whole score. Yeah, it's a good one. And it's a huge group number. It provided Bob Fosse with an opportunity to really show that he could choreograph for large groups, Mm -hmm. uh, that he wasn't just kind of a minimalist. So by the end of this great song, Once a Year Day, 
Babe and Sid decide that maybe they like each other a little bit more than Babe wants to to believe. So the next great scene that we have is at Babe's house. And we meet her father, who's obsessed with stamp collecting. And he and Sid hit it off right away, of course. Pop goes to leave. And Sid really starts, like, turning on the heat. Like, some of this dialogue's pretty sexy. Hold on, let me see if I can find something. She says, I'm going to make a sandwich. Want one? And Sid says, that's my baby, boys. She wants a sandwich. No, honey, I don't want a sandwich. Food is not uppermost in my thoughts at the moment. (laughs) And it turns into this great song called Small Talk, where Sid's like, I don't want a small talk. That We're alone together. Let's get this thing going. It's kind of like a less problematic version of Baby It's Cold Outside. I was just thinking that. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, I literally was just thinking. Like I don't think this is one of the songs that Frank Lesser wrote, but it wouldn't. But it could. But it could have been that kind of like same idea of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't feel rapey to me at all. Not at not at all. And maybe it's just the the genuineness of it. Like it it comes mm-hmm. across as it does come across as flirting, not in a creepy kind of way that most people take. You know, like baby, it's cold outside, or you know, something. yeah. Well, and like let's be honest, rarely in courtship is everybody on the exact same place of the page at all times. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Part of the fun is figuring out where the other person is and um, trying to meet them there. And Babe at this point is a very no-nonsense gal. And so she's playing hard to get. She really is. And she finds, I think she has some power in that. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. And I don't think Sid pushes, you know, doesn't go over a line. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's still, you know, he's like, he's respecting her. Mm -hmm. And then it gets really saucy because she is looking for her apron while she's cooking because she doesn't want to get any grease spots on her new dress. She paid 20 bucks for it. And she looks at him and says, well, I might as well be practical. And she takes off her dress. And so now she's like walking around in her slip for him. It's sexy. Right. No, I mean, wh- I mean, that's like, you know, sca- again, I use this word a lot, but that's scandalous for the 50s. Lord. Yes. By the end of this scene, they're on the same page. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> it's very, very cute. Okay. Now the next scene is back at the factory, except now Sid and Babe are, you know, a thing. They're walking on cloud nine. Everybody can tell. Oh my gosh. Another great song. There once was a man, which this one I believe was also written by Frank Lesser. Yes, I believe you're right. But it's so fantastic. It has kind of like a, like a, like you feel like horses. Like they're like horses trotting. Go listen to it. Once again, I would not be mad to hear this more in my life. Oh, absolutely. I don't know what you could... I mean, I guess it would be... I, I, I would love to hear it more in, like, cabarets and things, you know. It, yeah. It's a great little... It's a great, like, back and forth, and then you can sing together. It's, you know. If at any point you're like, oh, you know what we should do? We should do anything you can do, I can do better, from Annie Get Your Gun. Erase that thought and replace it with, we should do There Once Was Man. Yeah. I, I can get behind that, for sure. Okay. Uh, once again, Hasler, standing firm, isn't going to let that raise happen. And so what the girls who make the pajamas decide to do is to slow down their work, right? Because Heinz was always there with the clock, mm-hmm. racing with the clock. And so they're going to slow everything down. And that, of course, makes the superintendent, Sid, mad. Babe also gets mad. 
And she kicks one of the machines, one of the like the sewing machines, mm-hmm. and it breaks. And she's abruptly fired by Sid Scandaloso. Absolutely. And that's how the first act ends is Babe's fired from the factory and Sid is heartbroken because he's the one who had to fire her and he sings a reprise of Hey There. Number one. All right, everybody, it is officially intermission, and today we are actually going to have a little bit of a halftime show. Um, I always love when I use sports metaphors on this podcast, uh, really read the room. Everybody, please welcome my friend, Doug Carfrey, who is joining me to talk a little bit about the show, the history, and his life in general. Doug, welcome! Hey, Jeffrey Scott Parsons, how are you? <laughs> I'm pretty darn well and i'm so excited to see you it's been way too long it's been way too long and one of these days i'll see you in person actually again and you know and that'll be nice it'll happen joyful day of days yes all right now you have a very special relationship to the pajama game can you talk to me about that okay so i did the first revival of pajama game the pajama game originally started in uh i think there is 1954 i'm thinking 54 Uh i could be wrong yeah but in 1973-4, I did the first revival. And the first revival was a, a black-white cast. It was Hal Linden and Barbara McNair played uh, Sid and, and Babe. And Heinze was, was played by Cab Calloway. And, uh, legendary Cab legendary Calloway. Legendary Cab Calloway. But there were a lot of cool people in that company. Uh, somebody you know, uh, S. Mark Jordan, who is now... Who's no now, way! Yes, he played, he played Prez. In the ensemble, there were people Mary like... Mary Jo Catlett was in oh, there, right? Yes, she was. I love Mary Jo Catlett. We're, we're, we became friends Friend then. Friend of the podcast. And we've stayed friends for forever. Mary Jo and I are, are good, good old buddies. Chet Walker, who created Fosse, was one of the dancers in the show. It, w- it was a great... It was a great experience so now who did uh what did you do in the show i was now you got to go way back and when you go way back to (laughs) what they call the golden age of musicals there was a singing chorus and there was a dancing chorus and that this is pre-chorus line yeah well that's what i was going to say chorus line changed everything and made it so impossible for me to be in the chorus anymore but i i was i was a singer (laughs) in the chorus and understudied some of the small parts, like part of Charlie and the part of the first helper and the second helper, little, little stuff like that. This was my first big show. And so I was like, well, oh. kind of like a little puppy. Everything was new. Everything was exciting. Everything was shiny. And I, oh. I was so excited to be doing this. I didn't pay any attention to, to the things like that I would today, like box office receipts and, and how the show was doing and wasn't doing and, and all of that kind of stuff. I just watched uh, fabulous people work, and I got to work with uh, George Abbott. No, not only did he write the book of this show, he basically wrote the book of musical theater, like how yeah. to do musical comedy on stage. Yep. And at the, by the time you worked with him, he wasn't a spring chicken, so... What was that like? What was what was what was he doing at this point? Well, you know, he lived to be 107, so 94 he was crazy. still a spring chicken for in that case. <laughs> but he was old school. I mean, he started out at the turn of the century, so he came to every rehearsal in a coat and tie, and never ever saw him not wear a coat and tie. And I never heard anybody wow. address him other than Mr. Abbott. You didn't call him George, wow. and mm-hmm. you didn't. He did great work. The thing about 
Mr. Abbott, also being old school, is he said, this is where you go. You turn here. You go there. This is the line reading I'm going to give you. This is how you do it. And you turn on this. You do. Here's the, here's the beat. Here's the joke. You turn on the joke. You do this. And there was not any of what you'd call what we do today is, what is my motivation for that? Sure. Organic. There was no organic. It wasn't. Pretty much George, Mr. Abbott said, I'm going to tell you what to do and where to go and how to say it. And you're going to figure out how to make it organic. It's your it's job. It's very Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. I know Hitchcock was considered kind of the same way. And 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 he, obviously he was very successful because he did an awful lot of shows. But he also produced a number of them too. So he, it was it was terrific to work with him and watch him work. Um, he had an interesting time with Cab Calloway because Cab, who is a great actor, but also a band singer and well known for Heidi High Heidi Ho, if you know that. Of course, Heidi Heidi Heidi. He always tried to. Sneak that in someplace in, <laughs> in in the show. He would just and Mr. Abbott would go no 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 and and so <laughs> and it was it was that was, that was kind of interesting because Cab Cab was a uh, quite a quite a character. Do you feel like the audience had changed at all from the 1950s? I mean, by the time you you did it again in the 70s, had things shifted a little bit? I think they had. And I think knowing I was going to talk about this has sent me down memory lane and, and like bringing it back <laughs> lots of stories of my, of my remote youth. And Broadway, Broadway, by the time pajama, the revival of pajama game happened, Broadway was on a downturn. The whole Times Square area was a scary place to be. You never walked mm. down 42nd Street. At that point, you never went east of 8th, west of 8th Avenue. And now, of course, 10th, 11th, those are fabulous now buildings that people live in. But but in those days, and Broadway had gone down because I think a lot of people were a little concerned about coming into that that kind of crime and that kind of atmosphere. So, uh, right. and I think they thought by doing this show that doing, and, and maybe they thought doing it uh, with a black, white, interracial cast would bring something and it was an easy show to do but it it didn't have the success they thought it would interesting stuff do you have any other memories that you that you'd want to share Oh gosh well let's see i remember something and it probably this is going to probably be something i shouldn't tell a story i shouldn't tell but i'm going to tell it anyway (laughs) Uh, most of these people are dead so it doesn't matter Um, fair enough (laughs) for opening night um hal linden had ceramic plates made that were the opposite of at the end of the show babe has on the the pajama tops and sid has on pajama bottoms very scandalous but but hal had a drawing he drew it himself and had it put on these these ceramic plates that was the opposite babe had on the (gasps) bottom and he had on the tops well yes that was a little a little too much for some people. And I I hear this, I don't know this for a fact, but I hear that Cab Calloway was so upset about it that he took a hammer to the plate the minute he got it. That's that's <laughs> legend. And and Hal is still alive, so hopefully he will not listen to your podcast because if he does, he'll be upset because he probably doesn't know that Cap Calloway took a hammer to the plate that he gave. Him. Busted up his plate? Yeah. Look, at this point, he's got a... I would wear it as a badge of honor either way. Yeah, it, but it was, you know, some, one of those things like, oh, well. Yeah, he was he was being funny and being cute, but I think it was maybe offended a few people. <laughs> and that, people, yeah. is the pajama game. 
I have one more story, <laughs> and that is about Barbara McNair. Yes, please. Barbara was, she was married to somebody who, after our show in the mid-90s, was, was killed in a mob killing. So she was oh, married no. to a mobster. We didn't talk about it, but no one got <gasps> near her. She always had two goons backstage guarding her. And it was it was a kind of a strange thing to be to be backstage when you have two guys that are, you know, looking a little a little uh, just lurking. Yeah. And, and protecting her outside her dressing room waiting. You did not get to see Barbara through those guys unless like, I guess she let you come in or something. But it was that was an interesting thing to know that actually whoever the mob guy was that she was married to, I forget his name. He was protecting her using his mob connections in New York City. Oh my gosh! And it was kind of the, weird. like the the poor chorus boy who like tries to you know spark up a conversation backstage, just talking about her high belting, and then ends up getting pummeled yeah. in the back alley. But we never, you just didn't do that, you know. You, you, wow. you just didn't. You didn't really. I didn't have a real close relationship with Barbara because you just didn't do that. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Okay, those, those are two of... little stories that I that probably I'm telling way late, but people are dead, so it doesn't matter, and we're no, okay. It... <laughs> I I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, speaking of close relationships, it's kind of perfect that you're on this episode too, because we have spent a little bit of time talking about unions, and in particular the actors' union, and. You have had a close relationship with Actors' Equity Association for a long time. Uh, when did you first join? I joined Equity in 73. I became a counselor of Actors' Equity Association in September of 1978 and have been a counselor or an officer. Oh my officer, gosh, I didn't realize you had been... An officer and or a counselor straight through since 1978. So it's been 40-something years I've been, I've been on council. So talk to, tell us a little bit about what that means. All right. So council is the governing body of the union. They're volunteers. They're elected. There are, there are 83 counselors and officers, actually 75 counselors and eight officers. I started out as a chorus counselor. I became a principal counselor. Then I got elected to the Western Regional Vice President and have been the Western Regional Vice President since 2003. Council meets, well, we used to meet once a week. But then this last year during COVID, we met 50 or 60 times. So we meet a lot to take care of business for the union. And, and then we're on, you're on a bunch of committees. And committees really are what are the basis of the union. The committees are general members are on a committee. Theater comes, wants to do a show. They talk to the committee. The committee says, yes, no, do this, do that. Then they go out. That then goes to council. Council approves it, and it happens. So committees start it. And councils are the council is the final governing body and staff executes the policy, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. I don't think I've ever had it explained to me that clearly. So thank you. That makes a lot of sense to me. And because I'm the Western Regional Vice President, there are three uh, regional vice presidents, the Eastern Regional Vice President, the Central Regional Vice President, and the Western Regional Vice President. Then there's the President, the First Vice President, Second Vice President, Third Vice President, and the Secretary Treasurer. That is a group of officers. And we meet, oh God, we meet all the time too. So pretty much what I do <laughs> for the union is every day all the time. It's been that way, but it's it's all right. It's what I do. You know, some people, some people have other charities they work for and they do stuff for. This is what I consider my giving back. It's my charity. 
And it's not totally altruistic mm. because rising water lifts all boats. And so if I'm working on a contract and I get better, better terms for a contract, it will mean for me, when I work that contract, I will have better terms myself. So as an actor, it doesn't hurt yeah. me to also work on trying to make lives better for everybody. And I mean, that is go. kind of the definition of solidarity, right? Yes. We have to speak as one voice uh, as a union. If we don't speak as one voice, we really, we will crumble. Unity is something that we always struggle with as humans, but in particular, I know that my generation has often struggled with unity in terms of the union. And and uh, once again, going back to the pajama game, when the pajama came came out in the mid in the early fifties, union membership was at an all time high, and then it just kind of went down steadily to now we're at a point where a lot of non union actors are even wondering should they join the union. And a lot of young union members question if if this older institution even has their best interest at mind. Uh, I know that those are like huge principles to kind of even throw out there, but I can imagine that they weigh on your mind a lot as well. The pandemic has brought more of this into clearer focus because because people have had time to think about this. And I think it's always a struggle for non-union performers to decide whether or not they want to become a union member or not, because it makes a commitment. It's a commitment that you're not going to then do non-union work. And that requires mm -hmm. some amount of, uh, you might, you might say, I'm going to do this. And then you might not work for a while. And you've been used to mm -hmm. doing the leads and all of these, these non-union shows. And suddenly you're getting cast in the course of, of a union show. And that doesn't feel so good. And maybe that isn't. Mm -hmm. And so I get it when uh, non-union actors don't necessarily want to join. The issue today with union members saying, what is the purpose of my union? I think the problem is that people are not recognizing is what the union has done for them that they take for granted today. We are willing as actors to do anything because, and, and there's been something about nobility and poverty and there's something... The struggling um, artist. Yeah, the struggling artist. And and there's something that, oh, yeah, uh, just to get a job. I'll, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll hang by, by sheets 30 feet off the ground and, and without anybody under there to catch me. And, yeah, that's I'll do that. I'll, yeah. Because we want so much to work, because it's what we do, um, that we're willing to waive our safety. People that work in, a, in an office don't do the kind of dangerous work we do as actors. They don't work under thousands of pounds of, of lighting equipment and sets over their heads. They don't work with, with moving pieces that if you're not, if you're in the way, the moving piece will take you down. They don't work with trap doors that if you fall in, you're, you're going to break your legs. These don't happen elsewhere. We have a need to keep our members safe, sometimes safe against themselves and their want to do anything to do the job. And sometimes we have to say, mm -hmm. no, we're not going to let you do that. That's too dangerous. You will kill yourself or get killed or kill someone else. So, Or so, set a precedent that yeah. maybe will kill someone someday. And the other thing, too, is you can work non-union, but that may have to turn out to be your hobby as opposed to your career. Because a non-union theater is not going to be able to give you a living wage. It's just not going to happen that way. And the fact that you get health care when you work enough, the fact that over time, when you're your age, you don't think about it. 
But there is a thing called a pension. There is a thing called getting older. And there is a thing called you're going to want to have some money. And the way to have some money set aside is to have a pension that the union uh, provides through through employer contributions. Those things are really important. They're not so important when you're 20, but they're really important. When you get to be 40 or 50, you start thinking, oh, shit, I'm sorry, I used the wrong word. Oh, darn. Um, <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> oh, darn. Um, I should have I should have paid more attention to the fact that I'm getting older. But I understand the serious conundrum it is in deciding whether to stay in the union or whether to join the union. And I appreciate everybody's hard decisions to do that. And nobody is wrong in what they decide. So back to cut cut the chase, what it really is, is things are happening fast. One of the big things that's happening really fast is a social and racial reckoning and justice. We are digging deep. We're trying to root out the systemic racism that exists everywhere. And certainly sure. exists in in Actors Equity Association, which which essentially for generations was a a white union. I mean, let's be mm-hmm. honest. And we're working. That's moving fast. Still not fast enough, but faster than it ever has. And so I'm excited about the future uh, because I think we are. And I worry that those those people that are 20 is still never going to go fast enough for them. <laughs> and we're always going to be behind, and we're always going to have somebody going. You old people need to get a, get a grip, but it is happening, and it's and you know I I think I think people will see the the change. Well, I for one am very grateful for my union, and as much as they can piss me off sometimes, like <laughs> <laughs> truly, yes. um, truly, I am so grateful, and I've uh, I think the highest compliment I can pay my union is that they have taught me how to value myself much more than I did uh, before joining. So um, I have to yeah. be grateful for that. Yeah, that, that's the thing that the union does. The union says, no, you're a professional. You have to be paid. No, you have to be treated well. No, you're, you're not going to wear dirty clothes. No, you're not going to come and work around the clock because I think there is dignity in a paycheck. That I truly believe there is. Agreed. Well, thank you for all of your work, and thank you for being on this on this episode. It was so special to have you. I'm so grateful for the wisdom and and stories that you brought. It's incredible. I'm, I'm not sure there's any wisdom, but there's certainly I certainly have lots of stories. Um, you can't be in theater as long as you have and not have gathered some wisdom along the way. Come on, yeah, some some, and 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 I, I I'm glad that I got to do this, Jeffrey. Thank you for asking me. And I'll be interested to hear how it turns out when you <laughs> edit all the stuff that was that I said that was stupid out of it. <laughs> no, it's going to be fantastic. And uh, I can't wait to see you again in person someday. Yeah, that would be fabulous. Talk to you awesome. soon. Be Talk well. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. In the time since I talked with Doug, Actors Equity has officially revealed their plan to tackle the racial inequity that he referred to. And I think it's a wonderful idea. So if musical theater and the casting of it has been predominantly white, the point system Jonathan and I were talking about at the beginning of the episode would naturally stack the cards against diversity from entering the union, right? So now, in order to be considered for membership, you just need to prove that you have worked professionally as an actor. Of course, the problem of having union contracts available, especially for all these new people, is still, in my opinion, 
one of the biggest problems we face in professional musical theater, and I'm not totally sure this addresses that. I assume their logic is something like if more talented people become union, then more producers have to use more union contracts to hire that talent. Um, I think that might work in some areas of the country. Not totally sure about the West Coast, but hey, I truly look forward to being proven wrong. Now back to the show. Okay, so now we're in act two. This is really important to me, Jonathan. I need to get this right. At the beginning of Act 2 in The Pajama Game, musical theater changes forever. It does. There was a moment before Steam Heat, and there was the moment (laughs) after Steam Heat. It's true. In the story, we're now at at a union meeting because with Babe fired, with the owner still not being willing to give the seven and a half cent raise, the union members have met together in sort of a rally. And a couple of the workers are going to perform a number to get everybody jazzed and excited. Gladys is heading it up. Gladys, a.k.a. Carol Haney. And two really amazing male ensemble. One of which was Peter Gennaro, who we now know because of our West Side Story episode, was responsible for the choreography in The Mambo, in Dance of the Gym, as well as America. Right. Would Jerome Robbins have met him had it not been for the pajama game? Right, I don't know. Right, because this is pre this is pre West Side. I have something I want to read here. Apparently, before Steam Heat was created, Act Two was going to open with a ballet. Bob Fosse created it. George Abbott hated it. So then Bob Fosse goes to Richard Adler. It's like, we need a different number. What do you got? Do you have something you've already written? And this is what Richard Adler said. About three years before that, I had written a song in a bathroom. I was a young, compulsive idiot in those days. He considered the toilet, but thought it was maybe in bad taste. Frank Lesser had already written a song about a faucet dripping, so he couldn't do that. Then suddenly, I heard the radiator go on and the sound followed by the clinking of the pipes inspired me and that's how he came up with steam heat so Fosse loved just the idea of the number and they created the whole thing in three days wow it's quintessential bob Fosse choreography and it's kind of the number that all of his stuff would be compared to i don't think audiences had ever seen a number like this ever it is a weird thought to have it's so a part of our world, this kind of movement mm-hmm. that Bob Hossi pioneered. And it's just kind of hard to wrap brain around. It stops the show now. You know, anytime you see it, it still works in its original form. I also am I'm trying to think of another show-stopping dance number where it was just a trio right. up, in, up until this point. Right. You know, if it was going to be a big dance number, you had a big old group with maybe a featured dancer or featured performer right like a dream ballet or something sure sure or sit down your rock in the boat or you know it's going to be the entire cast involved these are three people and barely any orchestration because so much of what they're doing is with their mouths and and bodies right it's pretty brilliant and uh we're lucky that it exists oh it's a great number and you know and and a star making number in so many ways This is probably one of the big reasons why Carol Haney became a huge Broadway star. 
It's also the reason why she had an injury. She injured her ankle, I believe. And so she had to call out of the show. Now, her understudy was this young girl by the name of Shirley MacLaine. I don't know if you've heard of her. (laughs) But it's quite possibly the most famous understudy story of all time. Carol Haney had this really, really short hair, like a little pixie bob. And so Shirley MacLaine had had to cut her hair because she was supposed to look like her if she ever needed to go on. But like there was no way that she was ever going to go on because Carol Haney's Carol Haney and, and everybody loved her in the role. And so she was on the subway writing a letter to the stage manager to say that she was leaving the show because she just felt like she wasn't ever going to be able to do anything when she gets notified that she needs to go on. <laughs> so she steps in does the role of Gladys in the audience that night is a Hollywood somebody who sees her immediately gets her a contract in Hollywood and the rest is history. She becomes Shirley MacLaine, Oscar winner actress. There's no going back after that. <laughs> yeah. Like what? I know it's, it's the thing that keeps understudies going to this day is stories like that. <laughs> They're like, as someone Shirley who McLean, has understudied, as someone who's understudied, it's the truth. Not that you wish harm on anybody. You don't. No, but no, no, no. you're like, it'll all line up if it's supposed to. That's it's, it's yeah. the kind of what gets you through is stuff like that. And it's remarkable. And then the career that she had after that and is still having, she's like 87 or something like that. And by the way, had the career that Carol Haney could never get in Hollywood. Right. It's true. The even crazier irony right. of it all. After Steam Heat, after Shirley MacLaine becomes a star, <laughs> we have a couple of reprises, of course, because it's the second act, including another reprise of Hey There. But this time it's Babe. Oh, you're so right. So that is, that is different because Babe is missing her guy as well. For the revival, with because they hired Harry Connick Jr. Um, Hello. And, and other, there was other numbers included for some of the other characters too. But primarily, I think they wanted to give Harry Connick Jr. more to sing because he doesn't really have that much to sing in the second act. And I know they added a song called The World Among Us, Around Us, The World Around Us. And then also, I believe, Heinz, because they hired um, Michael McKean, who's a very well-known character actor Aww. from yes. probably most famously now Better Call Saul. If you, if, for, oh, for the, interesting. For the, I was, I'm like, of course, Clue. Clue, too. But I was thinking, you know, like, because, th- I mean, <laughs> no, that's smart. we You're would right. say Clue. But I was trying to think, you know, like, what's the most popular thing he's done recently? <laughs> If there is anybody listening to this podcast who has seen more of Better Call Saul than Clue, I want to know who you are because that makes me feel like I am attracting people that are not just me (laughs) and that makes me feel really, really good. And I am determined to enjoy myself and my, the soup is delicious. <laughs> we could just recite the rest. That's the rest of the podcast is we're just. The rest of this episode will be us performing the screenplay of Clue. <laughs> that used to be a party trick of mine is doing most of that speech that Tim Curry does at the end of that. Oh, really? Yeah, I, that's impressive. I haven't done it in years. So I'm not, don't, that's my way of saying, don't ask me to do it. Uh, that's your knife throwing. Right. That's like your, if you were to ever work with George Abbott, you'd be, they'd be like, okay, what you got in your back pocket? You're like, well, have you seen Clue? <laughs> Okay, so uh, what was Heinz's new song? Because the one that w- that's coming up of his is called Think of the Time I Say. Right, which is a great song. The song, that's great the song. Uh, new song was The Three of Us, Me, Myself, and I. Oh, cute. Yeah, and it was, it was a... It, I don't know that one. From my research, it was written by Adler. He wrote it for Jimmy Durante. 
like back in the day. And they just incorporated it into the show because, again, they had an actor, Michael McKean. So it kind of becomes like another kind of 11 o'clock-ish number for that character. In the meantime, think of the time I save is Heinz's song where he talks about like being ruled by the clock, right? Mm-hmm. It's pointing out the absurdity of productivity. How about that? Right. It's a it's a very well-crafted comic song that really has a fun point to it, too. You know what I mean? The very last uh, verse that he has, he says, Before I'm dead, I'll dig my grave, because when St. Peter calls my name, I know I'll get there just the same, but think of the time I'll save. So good. Oh, so smart. So I guess I kind of failed to mention at the beginning that there's this secret ledger book that Hasler has, the the boss, and he doesn't let anybody see what's in it. And in fact, he has his secretary, Gladys, wear a key around her neck, and it is the key that opens the book. So like, even if you leave the book laying around, you couldn't get into it because you need the key. It's like one of those diaries. So Sid has the idea that, look, if I'm going to get back together with Babe, if we're going to fix this problem at the factory where all of the girls are pretending to sew really slowly, then I need to find an answer. And the answer may be in that ledger book. But in order to get into it, he needs to convince Gladys to give him the key. Now, Gladys refuses But then Sid says, well, then at the very least, let's go out to dinner or go out to a club tonight just for fun. Not romantic because I know you're with Heinz, but like, let's let's do it. And Gladys is a good time gal. She's been performing steam heat. So we all know she's game for some dancing. She's like, great. I know this place. And it's called Hernando's Hideaway. Another legendary song. Absolutely. That to this day, people probably hear and don't realize is from the pajama game. Right. Do you remember like, now that's what I call music 23 or, you know. All oh, of yeah. <laughs> Dance With Me by Double Morgan is 100% on there. <laughs> and I'm going to play it for you now to see if maybe you recognize the song. Here we go. That's just Hernando's hideaway. Hernando's hideaway. Lord. Anyway, it's literally Hernando's hideaway, but it was turned into Dance With Me by Double Morgan. And boy, oh boy, does that song sound like the 2000s. I was about to say, I was like, where are we? Did we travel? Did we time travel? What's happening? Why is Britney and Justin Timberlake dressed in all denim? But just goes to show, like, that groove that they came up with with this song reached far beyond the musical. And very adaptable. Apparently. (laughs) All right. So Hernando's Hideaway. This is the club that they go to. It's got this amazing song. It was quite uh, revolutionary in that when they go to the club, it was completely black. Like they didn't have any lights whatsoever. And so that was something really novel for the audience to be experiencing this number in the dark. And then like a flame would flicker over here and a match would be lit over there. And so they were playing with kind of the absurdity of really, quote unquote, cool places that are so dark you can't even see anything. We've all been there. But also a really fun opportunity for Bob Fosse to come up with some really interesting tango movements, another tour de force for Carol Haney. 
hitting it out of the ballpark. Right. Well, and you need that, you know, bring the audience home because, you know, we're, you know, then we have to wrap. We're getting there. We have to wrap up the plot. <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, Heinz comes to Hernando's hideaway and sees Sid with Gladys. And of course, we know that he has a big jealousy problem. So in the 1954 version, this gave way to the jealousy ballet. And this is probably, now that I'm thinking about it, where they put that song that you I believe you you're absolutely correct, yes. After, after the Jealousy Ballet, or whatever version you see, we're back in the office. And Sid, by the way, was able to get the key from Gladys, who had a little too much to drink at Hernando's Hardaway. And so he was able to look in the book and see, spoiler alert, that... The seven and a half cents has already been figured into the operating costs of the factory. Dun, dun, dun. This boss has been pocketing the extra money as as profit. Bad boss. Bad, bad businessman. <laughs> With this newfound information, he tells Prez to hold off the strike that they should maybe have a parade or something um, instead. And he's going to go talk to the boss and then he'll come and meet up with them later. So Prez and all of the kids have this great parade talking about how life is going to be so much better once they have seven and a half cents. Seven and a half cents isn't not a lot. In the meantime, Sid talks to Hasler and, re- and reveals that he knows exactly what's going on. And then it only is a matter of time before he, Sid, goes to all of the kids and announces that they get the raise. So now we're at the finale, right? I mean, everybody gets what they want. Even the business owner is able to finally fill the orders that have been pouring in and, and haven't been filled because nobody's working at the speed that they can. The workers get their seven and a half cent raise. And of course, Sid and Babe are able to make up and be in love. Oh, the end. <laughs> I just can only imagine how an audience would leave. And exactly what we were saying earlier, making it really feel like a true, the real musical comedy of it all. The real like mm-hmm. happy ending. The everyone gets what they want. Everyone ends up with who they need to end up with. And you send the audience home with a tune that they can hum. There are specific moments that I really treasure in which I laughed so hard in a theater and everyone else laughed too and for a split second we were bonded in a way that like you can't like goes beyond words oh that's the power of live theater it is it is and while it can come from really serious and contemplative pieces it can also come from just full-out belly laughs oh and, and I think that that is also the power of theater is that it it doesn't have to just be one genre or one approach. You can really change lives in a whole myriad of ways by using the, the same art form. A friend of mine once said that a simple musical comedy, and they used musical comedy in quotes because it, <laughs> it, it was said to them in a derogative sense. But a musical sure. comedy, a simple musical comedy has the power to change people's lives. And the truth is, is that in 1954, this musical was pretty leftist. Oh, Like if you're talking about politics, you know, as silly and as funny as it is, the fact that it was then done in community theaters all over the country 
making people comfortable with the message that unions maybe have your back more than big business. Sure. Like that's a pretty impressive wave. Sure. I mean, corporations have spent democratic values. Corporations have spent the last 50 years trying to destroy that, that idea in the general public. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And they've been kind of successful in my opinion, but for a moment there, nothing quite like making people laugh and also giving them something that might change their society and culture along with it. 1,000%. Well, this has been really fun. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. I can't think of a more pleasant way to spend for what is me my afternoon. (laughs) Best of luck. I hope that we get to meet someday in person. Me too. As always, if you have shows you'd like to recommend for us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at a musical podcast. We're also on TikTok doing some great videos. We've got our T Public store. And please subscribe to our Patreon exclamation point, where for only $1 a month, you can gain access to exclusive content that is not available on our regular feed. It's really, really awesome. I'm so grateful for all of those who have subscribed so far and keep it coming because it will allow this show to continue in the future. Hey, Jonathan, how do we follow you and everything you're up to? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at J.S. Chisholm, C-H-I-S-O-L-M, 2-2. You can also follow me um, on YouTube at Jonathan Chisholm the second. And I um, post videos, try to make you laugh, try to make you cry, whatever I can do to get, get us through this time that we're in currently. Everybody out there, thank you for listening. And remember, I don't know, what kind of pajamas do you wear? There's our sultry conversation ender. Oh, are you actually asking? <laughs> yeah, I'm actually asking. Oh, Lord. Uh, I wear, an, I just wear like a nightshirt. Okay. <laughs> the nightshirt. That's nice. Yeah. I grew up in a basement, in like a cold basement. So I am used to sleeping in full pajama attire. And see, and I'm from the South where it's, it, it's always hot and humid. Always. Mm-hmm. Even with see? the air on. <laughs> there you go. Everybody, let us know what you wear to bed. Goodbye. (laughs) Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChapaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.